Thank you, brother, for leading us in that time of prayer. Morning again, church. It is uh, so good to be here with you. I know I got the joy of welcoming everybody here, but the um, first thing this morning, and uh, now it's my pleasure and my honor to be able to open God's Word with us all as we uh, continue this series we've titled Emmanuel, uh, which means God with us as we uh, walk through this season of Advent and we march toward Christmas. So today our text that we're going to be looking at is uh, Isaiah chapter 7. So if you would please open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 7 with me uh, today. Um, we're going to go ahead and I'll read that out loud here for us in just a few minutes. If you don't have a Bible and you have a pew Bible in front of you, Isaiah chapter 7 can be found on page 571. And we invite everybody to, uh, to grab a Bible and follow along with me. I'm going to try my best today to uh, keep going. Uh, Dorn and the kids aren't here today. We're still dealing with some sickness in the stone house and it started to hit me kind of last night and uh, when I got here this morning my voice got nice and raspy so it's uh, my December normal for us all so hopefully uh, we'll make it through because uh, I have to warn you I, I need an hour day today church so we won't go a full hour but I need one <laughs> so we're going to press on and we're going to get through but uh, this, uh, this could be a little bit longer than normal so pray my voice holds out Isaiah chapter 7 in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. You and Sher Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little that you too weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day that Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. 
We find uh, Judah and King Ahaz in a, in a frightening place this morning. And I want to ask us as we get started to just think in your own lives and to ask yourselves this question, who do we turn to in our most desperate of circumstances? When things are, are hard and they're frightening and, and we're afraid and we don't know what's coming next, who is it that we're turning to in these times? This King Ahaz, who we see in this text, we see a, a warning of what it looks like to trust in our own works, to trust in our own hands, to trust in our, our own abilities, and to turn our backs on the Lord. The text we just read, it contains one of the most well-known prophecies of the Old Testament. Verse 14, the prophet Isaiah comes and gives those words to King Ahaz, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And this verse that now shows up on cards and decorations and all sorts of other Christmas-related items, we look to this text in our Bibles today to ask that question of what's really going on here in this part of God's story. This part of Scripture is one that Jews and critics look at and accuse Christians of claiming uh, verse 14 for Jesus when they say it's not a messianic text. They say verse 14 is not actually about Jesus. It's not a messianic text. It's something else. It's something different. So we look at this text today because we want to understand what is it that the Old Testament tells us to look forward to with the coming of Christ. What is Isaiah talking about here in chapter 7? Does this text actually serve as a messianic prophecy that we, that we see fulfilled by Christ? What does this sign of Emmanuel actually point us to? I don't want to ruin that suspense for you, church, but given the name of this series for Advent is Emmanuel, God with us, I think the answer's already been spoiled for you what, what it is, right? There's a lot going on here in chapter 7 of Isaiah. And then we find the people of Israel here in a very dark time. And this week... Week 2 of Advent usually is known as the week of peace, but the setting for the chapter that we've just read is anything but peaceful. The prophet Isaiah has come to King Ahaz during this time of uncertainty and this time of fear and this, this time where uh, Syria and Israel are coming together to bring ruin onto Judah. And Isaiah has come to make him an offer of peace. To say to turn back to the Lord. But this evil king who is ruling in Jerusalem rejects this offer that Isaiah brings. He rejects the kindness of the Lord that the prophet has come to share with King Ahaz. And this is where I think we see the real main idea of Isaiah chapter 7. This is where the heart of this passage lies. Because when we focus in on the statement of the miraculous birth in verse 14, there's a reason Isaiah gives this sign to Ahaz. This sign is to rebuke an evil king who has ruled wickedly over God's people. And the reason for this sign, this main idea, that's what's up on the screen right there for us, is that God will provide his faithful king who will rule over his people righteously. See, King Ahaz is a faithless king who has done wicked things, and when he doesn't turn from faithlessness and his sin, Isaiah gives those famous words in verse 14 to tell us of the true king 
that is coming. And we get to look at this passage now today with all the benefit of hindsight. Right? We get to look back in history and we get to see all of these things fulfilled and, and we look at it today to see and to believe that God has come to rescue His people and to dwell with His people through His Son, Jesus. That's why we gather here as a church. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate Advent and we say we're looking forward to His coming. We remember His first coming and we look forward to His second In spite of what the critics may say, this passage, church, is absolutely messianic and it absolutely points us directly to our Lord and our Savior. And I think we can prove that here today as we walk through this text. And we can prove it more so than just to prove a theological point, but I think we can prove it and be strengthened in our faith and our hope in Christ as well. Because that's why we're here. We're here to worship Jesus today. We're here to see that these words were fulfilled in Christ today. And though Ahaz faced his kingdom crumbling before him and he trusted in his own strength, we get to trust in the strength of Christ as we see the world crumbling around us. I said we may be here a little bit longer than normal today. That's because I feel like there's some necessary background work that we have to do for us to really uh, grasp what's being said in verse 14. So I want to ask the question for us, where are we in history in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 7? Well, quickly for us, a few weeks ago we were in the book of Nehemiah and we said that Nehemiah takes place 450 years before Jesus is born. And we know then at that time that the Jews are beginning to return to Jerusalem from their exile. And now in Isaiah chapter 7 though, we need to back up in time a little bit further. And the words that Isaiah uh, comes to give to Ahaz, happened about 300 years prior to the events of Nehemiah. So this is before the people are actually exiled from the land. During this time, the reign of Ahaz has, uh, during this time, during the reign of Ahaz, Israel has been split up into two nations with 10 northern tribes establishing their own king, a king who does not come from the line of David, and this northern kingdom continues to go farther and farther off into idolatry, into false worship, and into all of the evil actions that come with submitting themselves to the false gods of the region in which they live. And this northern nation retains the name of Israel, but we see in this text that it's often also called Ephraim. So if you see that name Ephraim in these texts, know that we're talking about this nation of Israel. The second nation that uh, God's people have been split into goes by the name of Judah. Judah. And this nation of Judah still has a king that is descended from David. And Judah keeps Jerusalem as its capital and its center of worship. These two nations of Israel and Judah, while they are brothers, they are right now at odds with one another. And this text today begins with Isaiah going to the king to bring him a message of comfort and to call him to return to faith in Yahweh, to not be afraid of Israel as it is seeking to make deals with the pagan nations around them to attack Judah. I said in my introduction already, but this time in Judah is not a time of peace in the land. There is fear of attack and of war, and it is very present, and it is very real to the people of Judah. I've got a map on the screen for us just to kind of see what that looks like. The, the green to the north is Israel or Ephraim, the red or orange to the south 
is Judah. You can see Damascus up in the upper right-hand corner. That would be Syria. And so right now the king of Israel is coming to make an alliance with the king of Syria, who resides in Damascus, to attack their southern brothers. This is what Israel looks like at this time of history. It's two nations, one that has already completely gone off the reservation and one that is following them down just at a slightly slower pace. Which brings us to Ahaz. Who is this king? What has he done? He's the one leading the people of Judah at this time. And to put it mildly, King Ahaz is not the king the people of Israel are looking for from the line of David. We find the record of King Ahaz in 2 Kings 16 and in 2 Chronicles 28. And in both accounts, we see a man who does not share in the faith of his fathers and is actively pushing the people of Judah away from the worship of the one true and living God. 2 Kings 16, starting in verse 1, describes Ahaz and the beginning of his reign like this. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This is a man who was following in the ways of child sacrifice of the pagan neighbors who lived in this land. This thing that was so offensive that God said is Israel comes into the land. You must drive them out and wipe them out. This evil has to be put to an end, Israel. And I'm commissioning you to do that. And what do God's people do? What does God's king do? They do the same thing the people around them are doing. The same evil acts. Child sacrifice. Burning your child on the altar to these pagan gods. Later in 2 Kings 16, we also hear of another story where Ahaz tries to form alliances with the nations around him out of fear of Israel and Syria. And when Ahaz goes to the Assyrians and he sees the altar that the Assyrians worship at, he looks at it and says, that looks like a nice altar that you're worshiping your pagan gods with. And he has a copy of this altar. He has a copy of it made. And it's placed inside the temple in Jerusalem. And inside the temple, this place where worship of Yahweh is supposed to be going on, they're sacrificing to pagan gods on this temple that's an imitation of the one he saw in Assyria. This is not a good king. And Judah is going along with Ahaz and the men who are like him. And they're going to feel the effects when the Lord exiles the people from the land that he had promised them. This is who Ahaz is. This wicked king who does evil. Well, who is Isaiah? This introduction to the prophet Isaiah we have here. Isaiah comes into the story in the life of Ahaz in chapter 7. But if we backed up one chapter to chapter 6, 
we find Isaiah being given his calling by God through this vision where he comes to God and he raises his hand and says, Lord, send me. And the Lord purifies him of his sins and says, Isaiah, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you to the people to call them to repent. But Isaiah is told, not only is he going to call the people to repent, he's going on a mission that's going to fail. The Lord tells him, the people are not going to respond. Their hearts are hard, and you're going to call them to repentance, but they will not turn, Isaiah. The people have wandered far from the Lord, and the time now is turning over for them where they will be exiled from the land. And Isaiah's job is one final warning for them now that will expose the hearts of the kings and of the people of Judah before God brings his judgment upon them. The judgment ultimately comes in the form of the Assyrians and the Babylonians as the people of Judah, the remaining remnant of the people of Israel, are carried off into captivity. Not exactly the easiest job in the world for someone there, huh? Yet in chapter 6, he tells the Lord, still, send me. This is who Isaiah is, and this is his call and his commission in chapter 6, which leads us into the text that we read today in chapter 7, where Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz with his son Shiriashib to go and to say to him in verse 4, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Remaliah. Ahaz may be terrified at this point. And that's our first point there as we, we continue to move on as Isaiah goes to Ahaz. Ahaz is terrified. He is, he is stricken with great fear because the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, is in league with Syria and they're coming to attack. And they want to displace Ahaz and replace him with a false king. And in verse 2, we see this terror in the king. You can look back at verse 2 with me. Listen to the words here. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I read that again the other day and I was, as I was prepping for this and the language struck me because it sounded so much like the language that we talked about last week with Adam and Eve in the garden. It reminded me of them in the garden when they heard God in the cool of the day. Remember I said that some translations translate that instead of cool of the day in the wind of the day. So Adam and Eve in the garden were struck with fear when they heard God moving in the wind, moving in the trees, and they heard his presence coming. And they were terrified because it was God himself who was coming. And what do we have Ahaz here afraid of? This faithless king Ahaz, his heart shakes, not because he fears God who is coming, but it is the news of these two kingdoms foraging an alliance. This is where his fears lie. Jesus tells us, do not fear man, who, or do not fear the one who can only kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the soul. And Ahaz here is more afraid of the men who are coming to try to overthrow him in his kingdom than he is the God who gave him that kingdom in the first place. 
And this is what Isaiah is told to take to Ahaz. And he's told to take it to him in order to comfort him and to call him back to Yahweh, who is the one and only, who is the one and only who is truly able to deliver Judah from this threat. We saw it already in verse 4. God tells Isaiah that Ahaz should be careful and be quiet. Do not fear and do not faint. And Isaiah delivers that message in verse 7. You can look back at that with me again too. Verse 7 says this, Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. Syria is just a country with a city that's at its head. And its head has has a king a minor king, a nothing king. The text goes on and says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. Who are the head of these two nations? It is not the God who has delivered Israel from Egypt. It is not the God who has delivered Israel, this land in which they occupy. It is these men. And that's why... Isaiah looks at King Ahaz here at the end of verse 9. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This thing that has taken Ahaz's heart with fear, God is telling him now that this alliance is pathetic in the face of the Lord. Verse 9, God tells Ahaz the northern kingdom will not even be around in 65 years time. His northern brethren will be wiped off the map. At the end of verse 9, God lays down the challenge to the king of Judah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. There's this call to return to God. Even in the midst of all that Ahaz has done, even in the midst of all of Ahaz will do, God is telling him, turn, turn. Put your faith in the one who will deliver you. That's why I asked us that question as we got started is who do we look to in our most dire of circumstances, church? That question feels uh, very relatable to most of us, I'm sure, doesn't it? As we're sitting there and we're looking at, at the circumstances before us, who will we turn to? Where is our faith being placed? Who are we going to trust to deliver us? He has had that question asked to him. Will you trust in Yahweh? The God who delivered your people out of Egypt and gave this land to your forefathers. Or Ahaz, will you trust in your own political prowess and trust in your own alliances with other nations, thinking that they will protect you from this threat that is absolutely puny before the Almighty God? Who will we trust in today for our salvation? Who will we trust in that will be there with us, walking with us, all the way to the very end, as we have to sit there and stare death in the face, who will we put our faith and our hope and trust in today for that time? Those words that Isaiah gives to King Ahaz continue to ring out, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. This is the challenge to Ahaz. It's a warning, I think, for us as well. This is the story so far as well. This is the story so far in Isaiah chapter 7. This is the setup we have to get to those famous words from verse 14, which Matthew quotes in his gospel, pointing us to Christ. 
We have this king in the line of David who rules from Jerusalem and is ruling over the remnant of his people. But this king is faithless. And he is already failing his people. He's causing them to go astray. He's leading the hearts of Judah away from their God. And Isaiah comes to him with this message to be faithful. And amazingly, not only does Isaiah deliver this message from the Lord, but this wicked king, Ahaz, is offered something that we don't see very many people in Scripture gets offered. He gets offered a sign. And if you ever sat there and looked at God and been like, God, please just give me a sign. We don't get those very often, do we? And we know the Bible tells us not to put the Lord to the test. Ahaz even quotes that verse here. But yet this wicked king, as God comes to comfort him and tell him, I will cause Judah to stand or I will cause Judah to fall. He says, believe me, because I will give you a sign. Verse 10 and 11 says this. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Not only does Ahaz get offered a sign, he's told, make it whatever you can imagine, Ahaz. As high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol, which is this place of the dead. This uh, One commentator called it this uh, fortress of the enemy. Something as supernatural or as amazing as you can imagine. Ask for it, Ahaz, and I'll give it to you. Think big. Think supernatural. God is willing to show him something amazing as a proof that the good hand of God is there and present to deliver the people and his king. But what do we get for Ahaz's response? He refuses God's offer and he uses the words of the Lord as this sign of false humility. He declines this offer of a sign from God saying he will not put the Lord to the test. I don't know about you, but if God showed up to you and asked you for a sign, I'm not going to turn that away, right? At least I hope I wouldn't. When God tells you to ask for it, you ask for it. And Haas doesn't. If we think back to verse 9 for just a minute, where Isaiah tells Ahaz, stand firm in your faith in Yahweh or you will not stand at all, we see where his faith is in this moment. We see as he rejects this sign that Isaiah is telling us that Ahaz is exactly the wicked king that he's proven himself to be to this point. We see it in this shift, this subtle shift in language. I clicked the slide over a little bit early for us, so... Y'all have, may have seen this for a minute now. But we see this shift and we see this proof that Ahaz is this wicked king and he is far from God and, and that he is not ruling in the way that he is supposed to rule. Because Isaiah says in verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask a sign of the Lord your God, Ahaz. And upon Ahaz's refusal, Isaiah looks at the king And what does he say in verse 13? Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Ahaz has proven himself, or he's proven to us, he's proven of himself, he's proven to Isaiah who his God truly is. And it is not, it is not Yahweh, it is not the God Isaiah comes 
in the name of. Ahaz rejects God's offer of a sign because he has already rejected God. And though he doesn't want this sign from God and he would rather work out how to solve Judah's problems on his own, Isaiah does what Isaiah was called to do. And he gives a sign anyway. God gives his sign. But this sign, instead of comfort and surety, instead of a sign of deliverance that uh, King Ahaz could have, could have claimed and had available to him in God's good kindness, no, now this, this sign is different. Isaiah shifts his attention from the present situation where God's judgment is about to come upon Israel and Judah. And he tells Ahaz, yeah, you're not going to be king. You're not going to be king forever. And because of that, because you refuse, because you refuse to serve me, because you refuse to do what's right, what the king of Judah is supposed to be doing, Isaiah looks and gives a sign. Instead of a sign being given to Ahaz, he gives a sign to who? To the house of David. And that even though Ahaz and the kings of his time continue to fail the people, there is a king that is coming that will be faithful to rule over his people righteously, and he will fight for and give his life for to protect and to save his people. And this king that is coming will not fail because he is no ordinary man. He will not fail like Ahaz. He will not fail like Hezekiah fails. He will not fail like any number of the kings of Judah who continue to fail until they're scattered. No, this king that is coming will not fail because he is no ordinary man. Verse 14, what's it say? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign that is coming to the house of David is one that is miraculous. And this starts with the first part. The virgin will conceive. This is a, a miraculous event, is it not, church? We know this because women in that stage of life and in that place don't conceive. Virgins don't have a husband. They, they don't conceive. They shouldn't. And this is an important part here for us to focus in on. So we're going to focus in on it for, for a few minutes. It's important because this is part of where the criticism comes from in this text in saying that this text is messianic. This text points us to Jesus. Because that word uh, virgin that we have in our Bibles is the Hebrew word alma. And many critics of the Christian faith who say we misappropriate this sign for Jesus rightly point out that the word alma does not always just mean virgin, but it could mean a young woman, or more specifically, it could mean a maiden. And there's a, a lot we're going to go through really quick here. Really, we could spend the next 30 minutes digging into the other places in Scripture where this word alma is used. And if we do that, we will see that the translation of virgin is not only perfectly acceptable, but it is, in fact, the correct understanding. I know we're, we're, we're speeding past that really quick. I can get you some resources on that if you want them after this. But this word alma is absolutely acceptable to be used, or is absolutely acceptable to be translated as a virgin. And if you look at the context of the word alma in other places of the Bible, this is the appropriate understanding. 
And I think we have proof of that as well, too, because if we look at the Old Testament when it was first translated into Greek, about 300 years before Jesus was born, the translators used the Greek word parthenos for the Hebrew word alma. And that Greek word parthenos only has one definition. That word parthenos in Greek only means virgin. Right? And this is, where, again, where the critics will say that it, it was mistranslated into the Greek. But I think the better explanation is that the translators use the definite word because they recognize the context of Alma in verse 14 to mean exactly what our translations say today. It's exactly what Matthew thought it said too. And Matthew, when he quoted these words from Isaiah chapter 7, right? This is important. This is an important aspect of this text because people will be very people who are critical of the Christian faith will say you're misappropriating this and it's wrong, but it's not. It's not. It's there and it's true and it is pointing to this miraculous birth. The second point underneath the virgin shall conceive. Um, I wanted to just highlight the fact that there's an importance behind the virgin birth here as well. Also, the sin of Adam has been passed on to all of humanity. I said it last week when we talked about Genesis 3, that all mankind has been born naked and afraid, trying to hide from God behind those trees that Adam and Eve were hiding behind as he was walking in the garden. All humanity is born separated and apart from God and needs to be reconciled to him. That sin of Adam has been passed on to each and every one of us. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. This is important to understand that this child is coming uh, from a woman who has no human father. This is important because this one who's coming does not come from the seed of Adam, but comes from the seed of the woman, just like Genesis 3 told us. So that when Jesus comes into the world through his virgin birth, he reverses the curse of Adam's disobedience with his own obedience, and he offers righteousness to cover the sins of all who trust in him so that we would be restored to right relationship with God. Jesus was not born of his father, Adam. He came from the seed of the woman, just like what was promised in Genesis chapter 3. That's why Romans chapter 5 18 and 19 say, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In Adam we die. In Christ we live. Hallelujah. It's important. The virgin birth has several layers of importance that we have to think of and understand. And I know I didn't give them their due in the last uh, five minutes. But don't lose sight of those elements, church. Don't lose sight of those things. The last point on the slide there, number three, says Emmanuel come as the true king. So there's two elements of miraculous things that happen in the sign Isaiah gives, right? Behold, the virgin will conceive, and she will bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. The first miraculous thing is the virgin birth. The second miraculous thing is that the son who is coming will be called Emmanuel, which we know 
Matthew in his gospel reminds us it means God with us. God with us. This sign promises the coming of a son to the house of David who will be God with us, who will be the one who will truly once and for all deliver God's people. Because the only Savior of God's Uh, the only Savior God's people truly can have is God Himself. The Scripture makes that clear. Psalm 3, verse 8 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Hosea chapter 13, verse 4, it says this, God says there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me. These are just three verses of many, many, many texts that we have in our Old Testament that tells us the one and only Savior of God's people is God Himself. Which means as Isaiah goes to the king that's in the line of David that currently sits on the throne in Jerusalem who does not trust in Yahweh but trusts in the strength of his politics, of his idols, in his own hands, and who rejects the offer of the one who can truly save him and his people in Judah, this sign comes for deliverance For Israel, he rejects the sign that Isaiah offers him. And instead, Isaiah says, okay, this is a sign now for the house of David. This is a sign for all who are trusting in that coming king who will sit on that throne, who will rule and reign forever. And this sign of deliverance for Israel, of deliverance from sin for us, it will come much later. It will not come in Ahaz's lifetime. And it will come in the form of a king who is born to a mother, who comes from the lineage of David. And this king will not look to other gods because he will be God with his people. I think of Ahaz and his life and the warning that it offers us as he's following all of the the practices of the pagan nations around him and the people who who fall right in line with him, we look at this and we look at this contrast between this evil king and this good and perfect king and we have to ask ourselves right now, church, who are we following in this life? Are we looking to the ways of men, to the politics of men, to the things of men to strengthen our own hands and to, to carry us forward, to think that that will lead to our salvation? Are we following the kings of men or are we going to follow the king of kings? That's the heart. That's the heart of this sign of Emmanuel. This sign, as Isaiah, or as Isaiah went to give a sign to this king, to be delivered, and he rejected it. And instead, we get a sign of this promise of deliverance that will come to God's people through his good and perfect king. We have an evil king, a wicked king, who is leading his people on a path of destruction, and yet we get this promise from God that there is a good king who is coming, the perfect king who is coming. And this is what it's going to look like. And this is what people are going to say when he's here. There is some question for many people on this passage about if there is a dual meaning to this sign Isaiah gives. And there are people that postulate when we ask this question, when does this sign get fulfilled? Because there's pieces that come that indicate judgment to Ahaz uh, in verses um, 
15 and beyond. And so some people are looking at this and saying that this prophecy has a, has a double fulfillment, right? There's something that takes place in the life of Ahaz that, that looks kind of like this, but the true meaning is in Christ. And some people will postulate that maybe there was some kind of young woman that maybe named her child Emmanuel in Ahaz's day. And, and this was the near fulfillment. Uh, this was the sign of judgment that Ahaz, that Ahaz received. But church, I, I don't see any record of such event in the scripture. Um, and there are people that I love and respect that, that hold to this kind of view, but I don't, I don't think we have to. I don't think we have to. I think we can look at this text and I think we can see the glory of God who is coming into the world as his son, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel. We can look and we can see that there is a time, a near time of coming judgment for Judah and for Israel. And there doesn't need to be some kind of dual fulfillment here. Judah is judged and made desolate. And the people of God are exiled from the land. That is the promise that's given to Ahaz in response to the utter faithlessness he demonstrates as he abandons his God for himself and for his people. And the sign of Emmanuel that is given is not to Ahaz, but it is given to the house of David. That though Ahaz and the other kings may fail, though the people have no peace now, and things are only about to get worse in the near-term future, one day the house of David will see the promise made to it by God himself fulfilled in this coming king who is Emmanuel. God is promising in verse 14 that he will provide his faithful king who will rule over his people righteously. That's one of the other critiques of this passage is how and when is this fulfilled? So just remember in verses 10 to 14, we see this sign of Emmanuel given to the house of David to point us beyond the lifetime of Ahaz. And if we keep reading in verses 15 to 25, Isaiah continues, but he continues in a slightly different way. He continues to tell Ahaz of the judgment that's coming on Israel and Judah that's going to come to pass on the life, or during the lifetime of Ahaz and his contemporaries. We can look forward in history to the true king coming and still look at the past and see what happened during the lifetime of Ahaz. These two things don't have to conflict. They don't have to uh, mesh in bad ways. But I think this is the right way for us to understand this. This whole chapter, or this whole uh, chapter, we see this wicked, evil king contrasted with the promise of the good and perfect king that God is sending. This king, this good and perfect one, who will give everything to rescue, redeem, and ransom people who are enemies of God, to restore them and reconcile them with God in order to truly make peace between God and man. That's why we're here celebrating today, right? That's why we're celebrating Christmas. That's why we're walking through this time to look forward to that day when we remember that Jesus came. And he came, leaving heaven, condescending, coming down, giving up everything to come and to live and to die for us, to make us right, with God again. So we get ready to close out today. Remember that God rescues and he rules through his son Jesus who is Emmanuel. And we can put our hope and our faith and our trust in him today to save us from our sin, to redeem us, to make us right with God. And I started by asking a question today. I want to 
I want to just finish with that one last time. Who we turn to in our most desperate of times today. We see in the life of the King Ahaz what it looks like to put your trust in the ways and the wisdom and the strength of the world. And through the sign Isaiah gives, we get to see and believe that God has already come to rescue and to deliver his people through his son Jesus. Look to him through those desperate times today. Ahaz did not. Ahaz went his own way. But we get, the, we get to enjoy the benefits of the son of Emmanuel. We get to turn to Christ today in those most desperate of times. We get to see and believe that God has already come to rescue and deliver his people, to come and deliver us. And he's done that through his son Jesus, who is Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you for uh, holding my voice together for a few more minutes. Thank you, God, that your word is beautiful, Lord. The connections and, and the... Lord, the poetry that exists in there that we just miss in every single one, Father. God, it, when we dig into it, it is a beautiful exercise. I pray that uh, that has come across today well for us all. I pray, Lord, today has caused us to love your word more. I pray that it causes us to want to look more and more into who you are and to how you work. Lord, I, cause, I pray that it causes us all right now to find our hope in you, to place our trust in you. Lord, let us look to that sign of Emmanuel and let us just see Jesus right now as our God and as our Savior. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.